Well, good morning. I'm, it's a joy to be with you all this morning. If you're new or visiting here, my name is, is Nate Phipps. I'm the, one of the associate pastors here. I mostly work with the youth group. That's the major area of my responsibility. So um, if, you're, if you're new and you're a student, uh, come find me. I'd love to talk with you a little bit and uh, get to hear your story. So uh, before we get started, would you pray with me as we open God's word? Father, we come before you and we echo that song, that all glory and praise and honor and majesty be to you and you alone. God, would you give us hearts that worship you day in and day out? Lord, the the driving force of that song is humility, where we seek to exalt you and not ourselves. And so God, I pray as we open your word this morning where we see pride being confronted and humility restored, would you... Make us a humble people. Would you give us hearts that seek to elevate you, to serve others, and to not elevate ourselves and serve ourselves? Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's a story about a ship that was once at sea, a naval ship, a long time ago. And it was out at, at sea with the Navy doing some maneuvers, and some exercises. And a terrible storm came in and some really dense fog rolled in over the ocean. And it made visibility really, really tough. And because the visibility was so tough, the captain decided to stay on the deck to make sure that everything was going well, even through the night. And about midnight, he heard one of the spotman sailors holler out, Light bearing off the starboard bow. The captain called and asked the sailor, is it a steady light or is it moving? Because see, if it's a moving light, that means the ship is, you're going opposite direction, different directions and you'll probably pass each other. But if it's steady, that means you're heading right for the other ship. Steady, captain, was what the sailor said. And the captain realizes that he and the other ship are on a collision course. And so the captain calls to the signalman, with the, you know, the little light that, that they used to signal each other with. And he says, signal that ship. You're on a collision course. Advise you change your course 20 degrees. The signal came back. We advise you change your course 20 degrees. Now, this is a captain. He's not used to being talked that way. And so, with a little bit of vibrato, he says, hey, Signal that ship. I am a captain. Change your course 20 degrees. The sailor sends it. Message comes back. I'm a seaman second class. I advise you alter your course 20 degrees. By this time, the captain is enraged. No seaman second class is going to talk to him that way. And he growls out at the signalman, you send this signal that I am the captain of a battleship, and if he does not alter his course 20 degrees, there will be consequences. And the sailor does. The signal comes back, I'm a lighthouse. <laughs> we advise you alter your course 20 degrees. Now, that's not a real story. It didn't happen, but we can almost imagine it happening, right? Because I think we can all identify at one point or another with that captain, where we see ourselves as being right, 
And even when we're faced with not being right, we just hate to admit it. And that, that sense, what's going on there with that captain, his authority being challenged, what that's really showing, what's the heart of that, is pride. And that's what we feel when we're in those situations where we're prideful. The captain was angry that his authority was not respected. And until he realized that he was on a collision course and had to change his direction, it meant utter destruction for him. And so that change in course was that he had to humble himself. He had to realize that he was in the wrong and make a course correction. And that course correction is humility. Humility, it's a, it's a virtue that is vital to the health and the well-being of every person, every believer. Stuart Scott, in his really helpful booklet, many of you have maybe gone through it, it looks like this. And his, it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful work, but it is convicting. He says this about humility in the opening paragraph. That humility, it is probably safe to say that humility is the one character quality that will enable us to be all Christ wants us to be. That's quite a statement. Humility is the one character quality that will enable us to be all Christ wants us to be. He says we cannot come to God without it. We cannot love God supremely without it. We cannot be an effective witness for Christ without it. We cannot love and serve others without it. And we cannot resolve conflict without it. And he says we cannot resist sin without it. You see, pride is something that we all have. And so often, because we all have it in one measure or another, it tends to be thought of as not a very big deal. Well, everyone's got it, so it's not that big a deal. But the Bible would say otherwise. Proverbs 16.5 says this, that everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. Man. James 4.6 says that God is opposed to the proud. And that's a scary statement because it means that when we choose to worship ourselves, to exalt ourselves, we are literally lining up ourselves against God. We are in opposition to him. And if we will not learn, if we will not heed the warnings of Scripture, then the Lord will put us through painful providences so that we learn our lesson and come to a place of humility. See, it's much better to learn from other people who have been humbled than to actually have to go through it ourselves. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. There's this incredible account in Daniel chapter 4 that we're going to go through this morning. You can turn there, if you like, in Daniel chapter 4. And my hope for you all this morning is that we will see the evil that pride truly is and we'll seek to eradicate it in our life by surrendering to God's authority, which is the foundation of humility. As I was putting this sermon together, I was like, was this a sermon about humility? Is this a sermon about pride? And I don't think you can really talk about one without the other. Because you have to know what pride is in order to be humble. And you can't be humble until you deal with your pride. So turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 4. It's right after Ezekiel, right before Hosea, if that helps. I don't know if it does. It's in the Old Testament. What's been going on up to this point, you see, in Israel, after Solomon died, the, the kingdom went into a spiraling chaos filled with covenantal rebellion, and it looked like worshiping other gods. They, they blended the worship of God with other deities, and it showed itself in sexual immorality, disobedience to the law of God, and even heinous things like child sacrifice and the like. And so the Lord disciplines Israel 
by bringing other nations to conquer them and take them into captivity. And the setting for Daniel is Babylon is one of those nations that has brought Israel into captivity, headed by a man named Nebuchadnezzar. In 605, he looted Jerusalem, sacked Jerusalem, stole the gold from the temple, and he rounded up the brightest and best in Jerusalem to take with him back to Babylon to be a part of his diplomat, uh, his, uh, his council, so he could train them up as, as Jewish Babylonian diplomats. And one of those men was Daniel. That's how he ended up in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar was a powerful ruler. He was a successful ruler. He was literally the king of the known world during his time. The name that he went by was the King of Kings. It's a pretty, pretty good title. He had a pretty bad temper. If you know the accounts of Daniel in chapter 3, because three men refused to worship him as a god, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it sent him into a blind rage. He couldn't handle three people not worshiping him. He's a guy who loved himself. Nebuchadnezzar loved himself some Nebuchadnezzar. But we're going to see in Daniel 4 what is so incredible is that there is a complete change to that man I've just described. And you see the indications in verses 1 through 3. Now this, this is a different part of Daniel. This is a, a story that is being told, a narrative. It's a true story. And it starts with an introduction. And it starts with an introduction by the king. These first three verses really are at the end of Daniel, but he's put them at the beginning so that at the, the beginning of the story and at the end of the story starts with praising God. So Nebuchadnezzar praises God at the beginning of chapter 4, and he praises God at the end of chapter 4. And he says this, read along with me, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all the people, nations, and languages that dwell all on the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It seemed good to me to show the signs and the wonders of the Most High God and what he's done for me. Verse 3, how great are his signs and how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion rules for, generation, for, genera- for generations. And so we see here this change that happens in Nebuchadnezzar. And what we're going to look through as we look through the rest of the chapter is how he got to that place. And the chapter really breaks down into... Uh, four categories. There's the pride confronted, humility is rejected, pride is broken, and then this humble man is restored. And that's what we're going to look at this morning as we go through Daniel. First, we see the pride confronted. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through this chapter and we're going to read it together. Some parts I'll focus on more than others, but we have to get this whole thing that's going on here. It's an incredible story. And really, it's one of the greatest divine beatdowns of all time. It's just incredible. With the pride confronted, Now, knowing all that about Nebuchadnezzar, this is what it says in verse 4. And pay attention to how the story is being told. It's being told in the first person. So Nebuchadnezzar is actually writing this down or dictating this down. He says this in verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my place. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in the bed and fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be, brought to me, should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers all came in, and they, I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. 
See, Nebuchadnezzar is having this dream. It's this reoccurring dream. And right now, Nebuchadnezzar is living his best life. He says, I was living at ease, which means satisfaction. I was totally satisfied. Life was good. I was in my palace. And all of a sudden, this dream comes on him. Have you ever had one of those dreams where you wake up in a cold sweat? And even if you can't remember every detail of the dream, you have a hard time going back to sleep? Well, Nebuchadnezzar can remember every detail, and it is troubling him. So much so that he calls in his, his magicians, all these guys from all over the wor- world who've been gathered together, and they're going to come in and get their chicken bones and chicken gizzards and throw it in a bowl and try and tell what it means, look at the stars, try and tell what it means. None of that works. But then finally, in verse 8, I love how it says this, at last. It's almost as if Daniel's kind of just waiting in the back, like letting them do their thing. It says, at last, Daniel came in before me who was named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. Now this is interesting because we see the theology of Nebuchadnezzar. He sees that something is special about Daniel. He remembers what happened to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel's already interpreted a dream for him in chapter 1. But he says that his name that he has is the name that's that's his God, God, a Babylonian God. And the thing that's special about him, according to Nebuchadnezzar, is that he has the spirit of the gods, plural. So he doesn't recognize Yahweh as the one true God, but he sees the Lord as one of many, a part of this pantheon of gods, including himself. He sees himself as a god as well. And so he says, something special about you, Daniel. Come and tell me what this dream is. That's Nebuchadnezzar's theology. And so we see what this dream is, this thing that's been keeping Nebuchadnezzar up so late. He says it in verse 8, or excuse me, verse 9. He says, I told him my dream, saying, verse 9, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods, there it is again, is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the vision of my dreams that I saw and the interpretation. The visions of my head As I lay in bed were these, I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong and its top reached the heavens and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field abound in the shade under it and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches and all was fed from it. Well, so far this sounds like a pretty good dream. But then verse 13, it changes. It says, I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches. Strip its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots and the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Now catch this, let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones. To the end of the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and he gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men." That's quite a dream. Now, what we need to get from that dream is what we we need to get. There's a big tree. 
It's, the tree is referred to as a man, and the tree will be cut down, but it won't be killed. The roots are intact. And I think that's the part that's got Nebuchadnezzar so concerned. I think deep down he knows this dream is about him. And so he says this dream to Daniel. He asks Daniel for a response. And Daniel already knows the interpretation by his response. And here's something interesting we're going to see. Is that Daniel's response, honestly, when I was studying, is not the response I would have given. We see the humility coming out of Daniel in contrast to the king. Verse 19. Then Daniel whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while. And his thoughts alarmed him. That's an interesting response. It says that he was dismayed or that he was shocked, he was fearful for a time. Now, I don't think Daniel is afraid of the king. If you read the rest of Daniel, he has no trouble saying hard things to authority. So I don't think Daniel is afraid for his life, for giving bad news to the king. Rather, Daniel is responding in compassion. He's concerned for the king. He doesn't want to say it because it's hard. It's a hard thing. But the king draws it out of him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream and the interpretation alarm you. And then Daniel says, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. That's interesting. He says, Lord, I, or Nebuchadnezzar, I wish this, this dream was for your enemies because it's so hard. I really wish this wasn't going to happen to you. Now, they obviously have a working relationship, but I doubt that they're buddies. Remember, this is the king that destroyed Daniel's city, sacked and destroyed the temple of God, and probably signed off on many deaths of people that Daniel knew, whether they were family or friends. If it was me, I would, have, I would have been pretty happy. I would have been like, sweet. King's going to get what he has coming. Here's the dream. See ya. Peace. Bye. I'm getting out of here. But that's not Daniel's response. He's concerned. He has compassion. And he gives him the interpretation. He still gives him the truth. He goes through. He said, this tree that you see, all the branches, everything in it, jump down to verse 22. He says, it's you, O king. You are this person. You are this tree in the dream. And then skip down to verse 24. He says, this is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon the Lord the King, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, because he's going to be outside day and night. And seven periods of time shall pass over you, Till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and he gives it to whom he wills. He goes on and says in verse 26 that this kingdom will be taken from him, but not permanently. After seven years, it will be returned. And then Daniel does something really interesting. He makes a plea for the king's repentance. He doesn't just say, that's it, that's the dream, deal with it, I'm gone. He actually uses this as an opportunity to try and turn the king towards God, to turn him towards repentance. Verse 27, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. See, Daniel's not calling here for mere behavior modification. 
but rather he's calling for a change of heart that shows itself in action. Daniel's saying, King, you're headed straight for the lighthouse. You need to change your course. You need to trust the living God. Turn away from your wicked ways. Literally, break it off. Turn away from it. Repent. Daniel's call is similar to that of Isaiah. In Isaiah 55, 6 through 7, it says this, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Daniel is telling the king that what God has decreed will come to pass, but if you, if you repent, if you turn to the Lord, there might be a lengthening of time before justice is carried out. You see, humility desires the good of the other person, not itself. And Daniel, though he probably had grounds to be excited about the king's humiliation, he wants what's best for him. He wants him to be changed. He wants him to be transformed. He wants him to know God. He wants his best for him. Now, we're not told what the initial reaction of Nebuchadnezzar is. Perhaps he was a little shocked by that. Perhaps he made small changes in his demeanor, in his character, But whatever positives that happened, it did not last very long. And we see this in the following verses because humility is rejected. Humility is rejected. Look at verse 28. It says, All this came upon the king Nebuchadnezzar at the end of 12 months. At the end of 12 months. So exactly one year has passed since this dream. Now, did God have to wait that long To bring this about, absolutely not. But you see the patience and the kindness of God. Nebuchadnezzar had time to repent. He had time to turn to the Lord. But he doesn't. And we see that because it says here in verse 29, at the end of those 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence? And for the glory of my majesty. You just see this picture. He's just arms out. Yes. This is what I have. Total rejection of what Daniel had said. Total rejection to the warning that was coming for him. Nebuchadnezzar thinks that he's the lighthouse. He doesn't see himself as the man in the ship. Humility is completely rejected. Humility cannot be faked. Eventually... True humility cannot be faked. Eventually, our pride will work itself out because we love to worship ourselves. And so, we see that the humility is rejected, and now he's going to be a humbled man. Look at what it says. It says that while he was talking, or, excuse me, verse 29, he says this, verse 30, I lost my place there for a second. In verse 31, while the words were still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. So God is patient, but only for a time. And the voice said this, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules and the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. He does this while he's looking over Babylon. 
his city that he built. Remember, he had coalesced the, the great thinkers and minds and money to build this city. I'm sure you've heard amazing things about Babylon. You can look up the Ishtar Gate, which is a 50-foot-tall gate with blue enamel tiles, amazing uh, carvings of lions and dragons. You can read about the Hanging Gardens, which is still a mystery. They don't know exactly how they worked and how it provided this like tropical climate over the, over the palace. He sees all that, and he says, Man, I am pretty incredible. And he says so, but when he said, he doesn't even get the words out of his mouth. And so this is the picture that's going on here. This is the picture. I, I think about like, he's on this rooftop, and he's got all these people around him, and he gets up like he normally does, goes to his balcony, and in, in, the, in the cartoons, they always have like the big bodybuilder guys right next to him with the pole and like the... The, the ostrich feather fans. So I kind of picture those guys are with him. So he gets up and he goes to his balcony and the guys kind of, they follow him. He's going to talk about himself again. And the king looks out, kind of takes it in and look at this city that I've built for my glory and my mad. And then he just stops. And the ostrich guys are like, okay. And Long pause, kind of this glazed look goes over the king's face. Maybe his draw drops a little bit. And then the fanboys hear a sound. Moo! Moo! Can you (laughs) keep, like, what do we do? Is he trying to fool us? What's going on? I don't know. You know what happened to Bernie last time he talked to the king while he was talking about himself? <laughs> Meanwhile, the king just runs around on all fours, mooing, acting like a crazy man. Dave, did you ever think anyone would move from your pulpit? <laughs> Sorry, but that's the, that's the risk you take when you invite the youth guy to preach. <laughs> I bet they never expected, they never expected to hear their king moo. That was for the kids. There's no children's worship this morning. (laughs) It would have shocked them. And just like that, it says immediately the king was reduced to a raving lunatic. In one moment, he saw everything being by him and through him and for him. And then all of a sudden, it's taken away. Everything's taken away. Now, you might sit in there and be thinking, well, he was a guy that was the king of the universe. He was an amazing conqueror. I mean, those guys did think they were on top of the universe. That was boastful arrogance. But that's not the only way pride shows itself. Like, for normal people, that's not usually what happens. We don't usually walk around and just be like, look at what I've built. I mean, maybe, maybe we do that. I don't know. But again, Stuart Scott says this about pride and how it manifests itself. I, he has a quiz in there, actually that you can take. I highly recommend it. Uh, it's very convicting. I took it again this week. I've been licking my wounds all week, realizing all the places that I didn't realize that I was prideful that I'd forgotten about. A few things. He says, are you an angry person? Anger is a manifestation of pride. People who are angry are do so because their rights and expectations are not being met. That's placing yourself first. 
Do you love independence and control? He says that proud people can find it difficult to work under someone else or submit to an authority. Scott says that these people are often rigid, headstrong, stubborn, and intimidating. Do you have a lack of compassion? Is there a lack of asking for forgiveness in your life? Are you defensive or do you blame shift? Do you fall apart when someone criticizes you? How about this? He says, are you consumed with what others think? Scott says, these people continually pursue the approval and the esteem from others instead of God. Or how about this one? Are you being focused? Are you constantly focused on your lack of gifts and abilities? Do you feel sorry for yourself all the time? Scott says, this is still evidence of pride because one is focused on self and wants to be elevated. Are you perfectionist? This one I thought was interesting. Do you, do you not have any close relationships? Scott says, proud people often have no use for close relationships thinking the trouble outweighs the benefits. It's an elevation of self. This one I found particularly convicting. Scott says, do you have a lack of prayer in your life? He says, most proud people pray very little, if at all. And proud people who do pray usually center their prayers on themselves and their desires instead of God's. So pride manifests itself. We're not just talking about boastful arrogance. Pride manifests itself in many ways. And God takes swift action, and all at once, Nebuchadnezzar is reduced to a raving lunatic. It says that he couldn't stay around people. He was, he was running around in the pasture. Verse 33, immediately the word fell. He was reduced to eating grass. He was outside day and night. The dew fell on him. Now, if you notice, the tense changes in this, in this paragraph. It changes to third person. That's because Nebuchadnezzar is no longer in his right mind. And so Daniel is taking over the narrative and is writing for the king because the king has no idea what's going on. And that was his lot for seven years, out eating grass, roaming around, mooing. I don't know what happened. I don't know. I would have, it would have been hard to have been the press secretary for that time. I don't know how you explain that. There had to come up some pretty wild, some pretty wild things. I don't know where they kept him, where it was, but God kept him safe and he kept his kingdom intact until finally the pride is broken at the end of those seven years. Look at verse 34 and notice the tense changes back to first person. It says, at the end of those days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. One morning, Nebuchadnezzar is out scrounging around looking for some fresh grass when all at once he lifts his eyes to heaven, his pride is broken, and then he comes to his senses. And I can't imagine what that would have been like. The last thing you remember was standing over your balcony, you hear a voice, and then you wake up out in the field naked, hair long, fingernails long, grass hanging out of your mouth. That would have been shocking. It would have been really shocking. And then it all comes back to him. Oh, I know what I did. I know what I did. Notice what happens to Nebuchadnezzar. He lifts his eyes to heaven. I don't think that's uh, just a random thing that's going on there. Often in Scripture, lifting of the eyes is a symbol of dependence, a symbol of repentance. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar is doing. It suggests and implies an acknowledgement of God's authority, of his kingship. And so really what we see here is that humility precedes sanity. Now he's a humbled man. 
and now he can be restored, and he says so. He says, I, now, now, it's not, now it's me. I bless the Most High. I praise and I honor him who lives forever. The humbled man is finally restored. There's often a question among people who study this passage is, was Nebuchadnezzar converted? Is, will we see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven? Men I respect, some men I respect say no. John Calvin, one of my heroes, says no. Uh, John Walvoord, a well, a, the late John Walvoord, a well-respected Old Testament scholar, says yes. And I would tend to agree with Walvoord. I think, I think Nebuchadnezzar is radically tra- transformed. He is radically changed. I think we will see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven because of what we read here in these next few verses. This humbled man is restored. You see, if you were to look back further, when, when Daniel correctly interprets his dream in chapter, chapter 2, he blesses God. And he says, blessed be the God of Daniel. And in chapter 3, when, when he witnesses Neb- or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being rescued from the furnace, he says, I bless and praise the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But here, here, now he sees the Lord for who he is. He understands that he's not one of many, not one to be compared with himself, but he stands alone and he says, I bless the Lord. I praise. I honor the king who lives forever. That's a radical transformation from a guy who was the king of the universe, king of the world. I think he is a changed man. And what we see here is that he is restored and there are four steps to this restoration. If we want to be humble people, there are four steps we need to take on this path of this course correction to be humble people. The first is that humility realizes its dependence on God. Humility realizes its dependence on God. You cannot be a humble person if your daily motivation is to better your name for your glory and your kingdom. A humble person recognizes that every blessing of their life is an abundant gift of God. James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is coming from above, coming down from the Father of lights, in whom there is no variation and no shadow due to, due to change. So when perfectionism, achievement, status, and recognition become our motivation, we are taking the path of pride and we're placing ourselves above God. And when we become anxious about the future, fearful of what others think, critical of authority, or bitter about the lack of blessing in our life, we are dethroning God in our hearts and we're placing ourselves on the throne. You see, humble people do not look down from the rooftop of their achievements, but they look up in dependence from God to God from the ground. Nebuchadnezzar realizes his dependence on God, and that is the first step in being a humble person. We realize that everything we have is from the Lord. Secondly, humility submits to God's sovereign control. Humility submits to God's sovereign control. This is completely antithetical to how Nebuchadnezzar has been acting. Look at verse 34. He says, For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. No, this is the guy who was the king of an empire, and no longer is he the one who's on top. It's God's kingdom who lives forever. It's God's kingdom who endures. My kingdom is going to go away, but it is God and his kingdom, and he's in charge, and I submit to him. I confess to you that this has been an area in my life that is hard to submit to because I don't always like the circumstances that God places me in. Do you trust that God is in control of your circumstances and has your highest good in mind? 
Romans 8, 28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, and they're called according to his purpose. You see, the root of, of pride is a dissatisfaction, a distrust with the circumstances that God has placed us in. And that's why we depend on our own achievements. And so pride is fundamentally a God problem. And that's why we have to start with the Lord if we want to be humble people. We could talk about practically what that looks like. Scripture talks about that. There's places for that. Talking less, listening more, all those good things. But if we're dissatisfied with our life, if we're bitter about our circumstances, that's a God problem. That's what needs to change first. If we see ourselves as the only source of achievement, that's a God problem. Thirdly, humility rightly sees his place. Humility rightly sees his place. Verse 35, he says, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. What a statement. And he does according to his will and among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? Before, the king saw all the inhabitants of the earth as nothing except himself. But now he's included in that statement. All the inhabitants of the earth, including me, are reduced to nothing. I am not the center of my universe. I am not the the good that always has to be sought. But it is God's good. And no one can stop what the Lord is doing. And no one can say to him, what have you done? Humility rightly sees his place in that we don't question God about what, where he's placed us in life, the gifts he's given us, the circumstances he's put us in, the relationships we have, the marriage that we're in, the job that we have. Now there is a place in the Psalms where the psalmist is questioning the Lord when they're grieving and looking for answers, but this is questioning as, as accu- accusing God of being unfair or lacking in goodness. Humility doesn't do that. Humility submits to God's authority. Humility sees itself for who we really are. We're nothing but by the grace of God. Lastly, we see that a humble person praises and offers gratitude toward God. So the last step in this course correct, if we want to be a humble person, we offer praise and we express gratitude towards God. Look at verse 36. It says, at the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and my splendor returned to me. My counselors, my lords sought me. And I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. What happened for Job happened for Nebuchadnezzar. Everything that he lost was returned to him, and then some. God had everything under control the whole time. There wasn't any coup attempt. There wasn't any distrust of his Sanity when he came back, they all fell into place. Verse 37, again we see this transformation. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, I praise and I extol and I honor the king of heaven for his works are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble He wraps up that story with that call by praising and magnifying and glorifying the Lord. That never would have happened to him before. He sees now that everything that he has is a blessing from the Lord. Everything he has is not by his skill, his cunning, his ability. It is by God. And so he offers praise and gratitude towards God. 
Those are, those, are, those are verbs there. Those verbs are verbs of worship. And isn't it interesting that Nebuchadnezzar was in his right mind but was totally blind to his pride? But after being humbled by becoming an insane person, that is when he can truly see God for who he is. Friends, to be proud is to act insane because we're, according to James, standing in opposition of an immovable force. We are putting ourselves opposed to God. When we seek our own, that's insanity. To be humble is to be at peace with God. He's no longer opposed to us. There's no condemnation over sin. Our homes are with the Lord in heaven. We've been pulled out of the domain of darkness. We are in the kingdom of his marvelous light. It's a precious thing to be in the safety of God's will, to trust his plan. It's wonderful to know that he has accomplished more for us than we ever could on the cross. Being a humble person is being a thankful person. Thankful, ultimately, to the Lord. That's the foundation of humility. Before we can get to all the other practical things, that has to be true of us first. So what is keeping you from God? Are there areas in your life where you're defiant against God's sovereignty? Is there conflict that you, ref- you refuse to deal with? Do you find yourself dissatisfied with the lot in life that God has placed you in? Is there a secret sin that you're holding on to that you won't repent of and, and turn to the Lord because deep down you know that you really like being comforted by it? Or maybe you've never, maybe you've never surrendered to God. Maybe your whole life has been truly all about you. You have entrusted in Christ. Friends, all those things are pride. And that means we are fighting against God's sovereign rule. God is opposed to me if I defy his authority. And he's opposed to you as well. That verse from James that God is opposed to the proud is a, is a scary verse, but the second half, there's a lot of hope there. It says that God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace, unmerited favor to the humble. There is a path to safely avoiding the lighthouse, and that is to submit ourselves to God and repent and turn away from our pride. That's where it has to start. If you feel that there is no way you can be humble, you're right. You can't on your own. That is why God sent his son Christ to this earth, who truly did humble himself in a way that we never could, by becoming a man, literally taking on the flesh of his creation. He lived, he suffered, and he died for the curse of our pride. He rose from the grave to rescue us from our pride, and he gives us his spirit that we may walk in humility. Nebuchadnezzar was the most arrogant, pig-headed, wicked man who ever lived. And he, could have, he was transformed. And the Lord can do that for us as well. The question is, is, will we learn from Nebuchadnezzar? Will we make a course correction in our life and in our relationship with God? Or will we move full steam ahead to the cliffs, foolishly thinking that it's the lighthouse that's the problem? Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for your word. We thank you for this, this true story, this account in the book of Daniel of a king who was completely full of himself but was radically transformed, not by his own doing, 
but by completely surrendering and submitting himself to you. And Lord, we thank you for the times in our life when we do have to go through a painful providence to learn your authority, to learn your goodness, to learn to trust you. Lord, would you give us humble hearts? Would you make us mindful of your authority? Would you overwhelm us with gratitude for the work that Christ did for us on the cross that we could never do for ourselves? And would you empower us by your spirit to walk daily in trust and submission to you? And would you help us to be a humble people for your glory and for your good alone? Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.